0: This evening's talk is uh, looking into uh, one particular aspect or a certain aspect of the third domain or the third foundation of mindfulness which is mindfulness of states of mind. And this evening we'll be looking into some of the emotional states of mind. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. (coughs) A few years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from various Buddhist traditions, various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the uh, guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization or liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of Nibbāna or realization being the complete purity of the mind, the heart has been described as the mind, the heart of an Arahant. And in hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence. A deep place of confidence in really truly feeling that this was possible. A few years ago when I sat with one of my teachers, Saida Upandita, and then again last spring when I sat with another of my teachers, Saidao Pawak Saidao, both of these venerable teachers spoke in very similar ways about the same possibility over and over again. And of course in the suttas, the Buddha also speaks of freedom in this way many, many, many times. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to have some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and these practices isn't really about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here we are making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in your life outside of retreat, you come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through the physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, And others decrease and you begin to know at least to some degree you've let go of what's unwholesome you've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering what's harmful to yourself what's harmful to others and we find that in fact the wholesome states of mind of heart are more and more our experience, more and more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices deepens. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to really be successful in relationship. To our practice in the immediacy of here and now. This grows. And our confidence, confidence grows in relationship to our deepest goals. Our confidence takes a deeper root. And this is from the Buddha Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The really extraordinary wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. The heart, the mind of a Buddha seeing only suffering and the end of suffering and encouraging, exhorting those that are heading towards suffering to really take care and to pay attention rather than judging them, rather than condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering and really rejoicing for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing can really be quite a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence in us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there certainly have been a number of times when the, I felt the various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and the practices. And when I've been able to be really honest with myself, I would see that really most of the time it was because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I also found that when I've really been filled with confidence in myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings as well as for my, uh, my practice has deepened and grown. My Burmese teacher, Pawak Sayadaw, says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful that this is what the Buddha taught. Last spring when I sat with pao Sayadaw, I went in for a practice interview, a particular practice interview, and I said, this is hard. This is really hard. And he looked at me with his beautiful smile like the sun shining and said, very sweetly, no it isn't. And it inspired tremendous confidence. And it wasn't hard. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are really filled with this approach to practice. As we find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more, our experience more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. Our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices deepens. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to really be successful in relationship to our practice in this immediate time now. So this evening we'll explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind, as they're sometimes called, that arise within our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation, liberation of mind, liberation of heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha was not excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish, from confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening in some idealistic or some philosophical way or from that stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new skeletons, anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. It's a long list. (laughs) (laughs) From our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we've seen. We've met with the heart and mind of meta and mindfully investigate it. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is there, whatever is present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. When they appear, And it's important to remember the when-they-appear piece. It's not about digging up or dredging out afflictive states or difficult states of mind. Maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find a really true ease, happiness Uh, without ever letting out the skeletons. But I've never met anyone like that. I don't know if you have. And if that's true for some people, fine for them. But really, most of us need to discover these skeletons in order to really find a true depth of happiness and ease and well-being in our life. Or we'll just continue to delude ourselves. Delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around, often unconsciously, unwittingly, for a long time. And this is um, from Stephen Mitchell, his, his version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock, sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious Other. He even dreams of it as he walks upwards, sleepwalks upwards. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him, like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside and let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Practice gives us a very powerful tool. This tool of mindfulness, this tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence to be able to see clearly and to be able to go home. Our Vipassana practice, along with the practices of metta and karuna, teach us, really give us the tools to open to our experience from the heart of kindness and patience, from the heart of acceptance and compassion, in relationship to ourself and in relationship to others. This is really such an amazing process, this process of learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being. Learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. To see just what is, what is here, right now. And begin to realize that it doesn't have to control us. We notice. We note this is how it is in the present moment. The breath, the body, mental states. The various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this present moment. With this tool of mindfulness grounded in kindness, the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that anger, irritation, doubt, fear, judgment, worry, grief, sadness, strong desire, really have no more control over us. The reactive, habitual need, for instance, to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or trying to fix it, or maybe even deluding ourselves with is though seeming equanimity or maybe even with a kind of cavalier attitude about difficult mind states, the kind of, oh, it's nothing really attitude. These reactive, <laughs> these reactive habit patterns in themselves uh, begin to be met with the heart of kindness in order to really be seen, or seen through, we might say. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of connecting and a knowing this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms, so to say, with all the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. Can we be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 or 20 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago, without giving it continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying from the time of the Buddha that goes like this, Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And of course, as you know, it's not a linear process. As we continue to strengthen into deep and mindful awareness, concentration, and continue cultivating the patient heart of kindness and compassion, It's this whole seamless circle of our practice that allows for the clearest depth of truth to be seen and known. And as each of you are becoming more and more familiar with, we sit quietly and watch ourselves and all kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are really primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned, habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be clearly seen and investigated. And it takes time. We really can't hurry it. We simply resolve, and persevere with patience. And the rest will take care of itself, so to say. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance based in fear. And it can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves. in and through this process of opening to and letting go of. This process of relinquishing Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Letting go of relinquishing our addictions of mind. And this is from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. In the Buddha's first Dharma discourse, he said something that we've all heard many, many times. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So I'd like to take a bit of a further look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life which is so directly connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering which is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related, everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachment, sadness, etc. And yet, often, we often take and believe the opposite of this truth to be the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though very solidly in place, permanent. Taking our experience and things to be separate, solid happenings, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We, for instance, grasp onto the past and project into the possible future and then solidify both in our mind. And yet the truth is that life just simply keeps flowing along. But there's also good news. <laughs> An amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As the Buddha very clearly tells us in his teachings about the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, the third truth, there's an end to suffering, and the fourth truth, that there's a path, Leading to the end of suffering. Here in New Mexico, <clears throat> during uh, midsummer and early fall, our monsoon season, our rainy season, in this big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. There's just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light is just right. And then of course one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes very, very quickly. Everything in life, including our self, all of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and in and of themselves empty. And it's very obvious with rainbows. But not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things, experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything we try to hold on to, anything we cling to from material objects to all of the permutations of states of hope and fear will cause some degree of suffering. And the other side of the same coin, of course, being pushing away, resistance. Our practice is about present moment awareness really, truly being in the present moment. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, etc. Just as it is right now, and right now, and right now. It's actually not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes suffering. This truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this present moment. And and on it goes. So take a look. And as I I think I said the other day, uh, liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, something that we ignore. And in English we have this saying, ignorance is bliss. In the brilliant clarity of the Buddha's teachings, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. (laughs) With, in fact, ignorance providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. They're not our true nature. They're just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So I'd like to spend a bit of time now exploring a few hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice, fear can often appear in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, with maybe certain thoughts of, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to. Or maybe a feeling of, I just can't be with this experience, this unfamiliar, new experience, or strong emotional state, or pain in the body, or maybe even this pleasurable state, this pleasurable experience, I can't be with this moment of life, and maybe feeling kind of caught or frozen, not able to take the next step, so to say. Fear from this perspective, if we take it up, if we buy it, can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment, blaming, the critical mind. It's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, and you can fill in the blank. The fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to any one of you. Probably different to each of you what that perfection needs to be. And all of this really based in fear. Which with the other side of the coin being hope. So I'd like to offer you another view of perfection May be different than what your conditioned idealized concept of perfection might be. This is from Chang Tzu, Taoist master. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing, it expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in, identifying with the mind, with the mind state of judgment doubt, blaming, criticism inwardly in relationship to ourself and outwardly in relationship to others, which is often a way of distracting ourself from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think we're often afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek And it may not have been uh, easy. One of my teachers um, used to tell me when I'd come in during a period uh, of my practice when there was a lot of fear coming up, and I'd come in and I'd fearfully report the experience of fear. (laughs) And my teacher would say, a couple of times he said, Fear is just fear. That's it would be his response. When the first time I was told this, um, I responded inwardly. I, I kept it to myself. didn't say it out loud to him. As I was walking out of the room, I said, well, to myself, that's easy for you to say. Uh, clearly, uh, a coloration of anger and resistance in this thought. But actually, over time, I began to really see and know that, in fact, fear is just fear. As we gently persevere in our practice, our practice of mindfulness with a growing and strengthening open-heartedness based in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet, to receive fear to really come close to it, to look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, not be shut off to the unknown, not be so shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. As we get stronger, as our mindfulness muscle gets more developed and our heart gets stronger, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are, it's not mine, me, I, it's not that I'm a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on an infinite number of other conditions, some of which we know and many of which we don't know and will never know. It may be a moment of a very intense experience, but it's clearly not me from this perspective. It's not that the energy of fear will never appear again but we can learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself and to begin to see it clearly, to see through it like we see through the hues of a rainbow. And Wendell Berry speaks of this in one of his poems. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles in water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me. And the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and what the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teachings offer us a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. This is a, just a short piece from uh, the Native American writer M. Scott Mamaday. He calls it The Fear of Botoli. Botoli rode among his enemies, once, twice, three and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear, so it seemed. But afterwards he said, certainly I was afraid. I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies." It doesn't work to repress or ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. As we know, they just reappear. And putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns, strengthening and reinforcing the habit of them. Nor is this practice of ours, this practice based in kindness and mindfulness, about purposefully dredging up or miring in analytically with all the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. And there can be often quite a lot of restlessness in the body and in the mind making it very difficult or maybe seemingly impossible to become focused and mindful of our experience in the present moment. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come close to our immediate experience. The intimacy of connection based in kindness and mindfulness that Patricia and I have been speaking about spoken about a number of times over these days. This intimacy in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from it, or desiring our experience to be different. So it's really important to learn to work with these difficult or afflictive states of mind and body when they're what's present in the rainbow of our experience. So, taking a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from that perspective can be quite seductive. I once knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. And she was very attached, very identified with her anger. And in fact spoke about really, really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong, and very powerful in this energy. But unfortunately she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and then feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away. She was actually a very lonely person and yet so identified with herself as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself or lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. I think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effects, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the angry person. It's the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, constricted. Our quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish when we're caught in the anger. We feel restless, kind of driven, nothing's satisfying, sleep can be difficult, the body is often quite tense. With anger the sense of self looms very large and so does the sense of the other. And in fact one of the primary reasons that anger is so painful, is that it very quickly creates quite a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line was drawn or an invisible wall is put up that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream And I think something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that anger, rage, and hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. A momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to our experience. The point at which we become aware of anger depends upon the quality, the strength and the depth of our attention, our mindful awareness. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger's not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out. A specific mood of the mind an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations, with all of it coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see, know the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or in relationship to fear, sadness, disappointment, expectation, desire, etc., It's very helpful to just notice them and let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them what I like to call give them no mind. These thoughts are really only the expression of anger. They also feed the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go And bring your attention directly into the sensations in the body, for instance. Feeling the emotion directly and in itself. Including the emotional states of delight, happiness. Feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. So what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Maybe heat or tightness or pressure, contraction. Where is it? And really, very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction. Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Interest grounded in acceptance of the sensations? Take a look. Every experience that occurs within our body-mind continuum is worthy of mindful attention. And in this service of acceptance, kindness, patience, if the emotional state is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk faster than you usually do with walking meditation. Bring your attention directly into the body with walking. You might open up to the natural world, the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, trees, the trees in conjunction with the great spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, maybe rabbits, cats, the prairie dogs, the insects the small creatures of the world don't indulge thinking stay mindful in the present moment in the physical world in the body in those moments of a connected present moment mindfulness afflictive emotions disappear they're not present The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. It's really beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. And again from Nisargadatta Maharaj in dialogue with one of his students. The student says, what is the real cause of suffering? Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations, however, or sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I'm this, I'm that, that fears loss, and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Again, as Wendell Berry so eloquently states in another one of his poems, he calls this one the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me and I awaken the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water And I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom or the understanding that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition with a clear, non-self-absorbed, mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the transformation of strong energies. The strong energies of fear, anger, clinging sadness etc so i'd like to spend just a few moments now looking at the wanting mind the states of strong desire greed clinging attachment classically unwholesome desire clinging attachment is the mind the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye we aren't able to see the bottom our visions obscured when our mind when our heart is clouded we're caught in the energies of and caught in the energies of strong desire caught in the energy of attachment we're blinded by desire we could say I think there's really some misunderstanding, though, in interpreting the Buddha's teaching that desire, that all desire, is a bad thing. Desire is a very natural human experience. In fact, it's what, in part, what got you here to this retreat. There are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. And there's the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires, for instance, we project onto the future. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need in order to be contented, in order to be really at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it can't, that it won't. Some time ago a friend uh, sent me uh, uh, prayer of Mother Teresa as a practice, I was told. Uh, They sent it to me in the mail, and I was told that this was one of her practices that she did daily. So I'd like to share it with you, um, just as it was given to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed?" from the fear of being suspected. She got them all. (laughs) 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 This is from uh, a woman who many people feel was a saint, an honest saint, I would say. I got a telephone call from a friend not long after I opened this and. I said, oh, I have to read this to you. This is really interesting, amazing. So I read it out loud on the phone, and his response was, oh, my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) True, we, we have a lot to do. But I find it really inspiring to hear her practice, read it, contemplate it, practice it. we can become really quite attached, dependent on getting and then trying to keep certain objects of our desire. And expend an enormous amount of energy and amount of time in trying to hold on to this or that. Or trying to get something back. Or trying to keep something or someone from changing. Trying to, or or trying to recreate A changing object, a changing experience. Even here in retreat, of course. Maybe the particular wonderful sitting that you had yesterday or on your last retreat or three years ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that's the problem. That's what the problem is. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. (laughs) A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while. How driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? So, for example, we go to the marketplace. The marketplace of the lunch food display at this retreat. The marketplace of where do we do walking meditation for this next walking meditation period? Or which shirt should I put on today? That marketplace. Here in Taos, Many people visit here specifically to come to the marketplace. Beauty abounds here. I've sometimes walked down the street here, looking in all of the shop windows, and watched my mind. Watched my mind and body. So, maybe there's seeing. Just seeing. Seeing forms colors kind of a bare attention seeing and then notice the coloration of the mind of wanting this kind of leaning into and even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need I need that I need that I must have that watching my mind Greed coloring a moment's experience of seeing. It's really a good practice in the midst of the marketplace, any marketplace. The Dalai Lama tells a story about himself. He says that um, he was taken window shopping uh, in some big city to an area where there are lots of little shops. Uh, that sold all kinds of um, small mechanical parts and small mechanical systems. And the person who took the Dalai Lama to this part of the city knew that he was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. (coughs) For instance, he loves to take apart watches and uh, put them back together again. So the Dalai Lama said that um, he found himself looking in the windows of these shops and simply seeing with the equipoise of an open curiosity and interest and then all of a sudden realizing that he wanted everything that he wanted all of it and he said when he told the story he said I didn't even know what any of it was for I just wanted it all so again a question to ask yourself every now and then, how driven am I by my desires? So a simple, quite mundane, personal example. Some years ago, I was at a retreat center here in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the very pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But I really wanted to stay there and to continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with this next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and to just simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was totally gone. And I was feeling a tightness in my body and quite a tight, irritated quality of energy in my mind. But I got up and I walked away to do what needed to be done next, But there was still a clinging, a clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience. I was already attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, and walking along, planning how I could get and when I could get back to that garden, and imagining how nice it would be when I finally could get back there. What just a moment ago, was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens really very quickly. As we begin to see attachment and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, a kind of stress, a burning, burning desire, burning fear. And I think often that there's some confusion, some delusion about this yearning, this state of desire, this attachment, some confusion that it feels good. And I think we even sometimes confuse it with love until we really begin to see it clearly. What is ease, happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. A moment of release from the stress of attachment. A moment of liberation through non clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning, the eye is burning eye consciousness is burning the ear is burning ear consciousness is burning and on through all of the six sense stars in this way and then he went on to say burning of what burning of desire burning of hatred burning of jealousy fear burning with the fire of confusion a while ago i i found a recipe some of you I have heard this recipe, and well, some of you have maybe uh, cooked it up. <laughs> At risk of giving you a recipe that you cook up occasionally, I'd like to share this one with you. It's called A Recipe for Unhappiness. These are the ingredients <clears throat> one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, one quarter cup of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, (laughs) one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is, with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and salt, sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to overseason or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add what is, add to what is an inability to what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let's stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. (laughs) So, a similar teaching from a different perspective. This is from a Chinese sage named Nan Xin, And this is what he says. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality the Buddha offers us another recipe the recipe of cultivating a strong clear, mindful attention and investigation that's grounded in kindness. A strong and clear, mindful attention that really meets the experience of the moment, sees it clearly, just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of afflictive emotions without getting caught, without getting swept away, without getting overcome in them, by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. With mindfulness and investigation and clear discrimination, the contraction of the identification, attachment to difficult emotional states begins to break up. And the wholesome states of heart and mind begin to be more accessible and, much more often, the experience of the moment. One way, maybe not your usual way, you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is a, a little piece from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, the white lotuses, do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. I was so happy when I read that. <laughs> For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that, in fact, as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or pretend to others that we don't feel these things. This is really our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called the Nectars or Buddha Wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, or as the Buddha sometimes called them, cankers. He, he often spoke in a very visceral descriptive language, calling afflictive emotions cankers, you know, with canker sores, they're nasty. <laughs> These cankers being transformed through our practice into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional energies are digested, we could say, into wisdom. So just for a few a moment, taking a look at a few of these, these transformative possibilities. Anger without self, without the self, no grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom, the heart clearly reflecting. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting strong desire without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into a clear, discriminating, mindful awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting or transforming into the heart of metta, the heart of great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of compassion and equanimity, bringing the capacity then to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of what causes the burning. And in the letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity. Coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the scene What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added, nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. We begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And I'd like to close the talk with a poem. It's called, Hokusai Says. And Hokusai, as many of you may know, uh, was a Japanese, well-known Japanese painter, and his most famous painting was of this great big wave Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, building, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's just sit quietly for a moment.